Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Open Era Podcast. My name is Devang Desai and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Simon Bushel. Bush, Brexit is complete. How do you feel you're no longer bogged down by that shady European Union? Indeed so. I, at moments like this, feel like I'm very lucky to have a Canadian passport. Maybe let's just uh, leave it there and move <laughs> swiftly on. <laughs> I wanted to open that up on a lighter note, but uh, yeah, great times indeed. We have another guest this week. You know him from a previous episode. It's Joe Wolfron from The Score, basketball, tennis, co-host of Pound the Rock. Joe, how are you? I'm doing all right. A little tired, running on fumes, but getting through. I just, I want to open with this. As much as I love the Australian Open, I'm very happy it's over. My my sleep patterns have been all over the place. And I, I ended this year's tournament um, a few hours ago as we record this on Sunday in a state of anger. And we'll get into it right now. Novak Djokovic has won his eighth Australian Open and his 17th Grand Slam to move ever closer to Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. A five-set match against Dominic Team in which Novak found himself down two sets to one. I would not call this a classic, but once again, we are left with something that seems very familiar. Novak Djokovic found a way when it mattered. Joe, top line, biggest thing that you you kind of walk away with as we get a little bit deeper into this match, but just your your above-level thoughts. About the tournament as a whole or just the final? Novak, the, the final. Um, I never seriously thought that he was going to lose, but I also think, um, like, obviously this was as close, I think, as he's come to losing an Australian Open final, and I do sort of walk away with this with a sense of optimism about Dominic team's immediate future. I know we were kind of going back and forth on Twitter about this, but like, I still think that there's a really good chance that, you know, one of him or those other young guys that I think are kind of on his level right now and, and Medvedev, Zverev, maybe uh, Tsitsipas as well. Like one of those guys is going to break through. I, I think this year they're obviously getting closer. Um, I, you know, I didn't think Djokovic's level in that final was particularly strong. Uh, and it just, comes down to I think what it has come down to a lot of the time over the course of his career at least when he's not going up against another member of the big three is just like he's a little bit mentally tougher even though it doesn't look like it sometimes even when he's he, like he can look like he's melting down on the court and like somehow he still manages to keep it together and play the big points a little bit better and um, I, I think you know in in the fourth and fifth sets just like teams level dipped a little bit and uh, Djokovic will always just kind of dial down the risk and refuse to beat himself. And um, if you aren't, you know, in the right frame of mind to beat him and really take the belt away, then you're not going to do it. And I think, um, you know, team was playing well enough early in that match to win, but his level dipped just a bit and that was it. Simon, was there a point that you thought team was going to actually win this as you watched it back? <sighs> that's, a, that's a tough question to answer especially being so close removed from it, it feels like we sit here and think it's almost inevitable that Djokovic was going to win this final. I think we exchanged some messages before this final and we both kind of had this belief coming out of that semi-final win where he beat Alexander Zverev, where we thought that this might be the one for team. Like it might be finally the time that it felt like the right final for him to come into this and, and have a chance of winning his first Grand Slam. 
I think the closer that we got to the final, the more reality set into us. And we <laughs> yeah. we came to the realization that that's probably just a, a romanticized version of what we were going to see. I did think that he was going to make this very difficult. I think that's one thing that you could say about Tim is he's, he's just such a very, very solid player now that it's it's very challenging to get the better of him. The thing that stands out for me as well about him is just the weight of his ground strokes. They're such a weapon that if everything's working together and he's managing to hit both on both wings, he's going to be unstoppable and he is going to win matches that he shouldn't be winning. That being said, Djokovic went back to what he always does. He just made his opponent work. And eventually, I think the hours on court caught up with him, didn't it? He looked like a player who'd spent 22 hours on court by the end of the whole thing. He looked exhausted. I guess to answer your question, I did. I actually thought Tim was going to win this one. I really genuinely thought he was going to win it, but proves me wrong. And just another grand slam in the in the trophy cabinet for Novak Djokovic, unsurprisingly, I guess. As Joe mentioned, this one didn't really follow the script of past Australian Open finals for Novak. I mean, the first set did. It looked like though it would be a close match, Novak would be in control when it mattered, and he took that first set. But then, as we saw at Wimbledon last year, I think Novak ran into a problem with a double-time violation, and when she went off on the umpire, quote, you made yourself famous today, well done, man. Um, Right after that, he got broken, lost the second set. Third set, he went away completely. There was a medical issue, uh, went off court. Again, we've seen this before. Novak rope-a-dope, I mean... The man had an extra day of rest as well, but I think he wasn't totally right against Milos Raonic or Roger Federer in the lead-up to this final. So I don't think there's any reason to cast aspersions on why he thought it was necessary to do that. But it it looked it looked like there it was there for the taking, like you mentioned. And I, I think a part of me did actually believe Dominic Team had a chance to do this because what Dominic Team was doing was very smart for someone who really didn't have his best shot going. The backhand down the line was a liability, but the forehand, which... I was ready to anoint as the greatest shot in the game right now. I mean, he he put some extra spin on it. He talked after the match. He's like, that's the only change I really made. I, t- I decided to put more spin on it, hit it a little heavier and deeper, and it worked really well. And and that slice that did him so well against Rafa Nadal was wicked. But then, as Novak briefly began, began it came back. And for me, there was a couple moments, I think, that will serve as um, the real turning points. It was as team was serving out the third set, Novak pushed back in that last game, took him to deuce, took him to several deuce ties. Um, and you saw you saw Novak kind of signaling to Dominic Team like, this won't be easy. I'm not going to beat myself. You're going to have to beat me. And I think the biggest problem that everyone outside of the big three runs into when they face these guys is the idea and the realization that they will not beat themselves and they'll have to come up with something huge. I know John Millman and Tenny Sangrid are not on the level of Dominic Team, but both of those guys were going to have to beat Roger Federer at the end of those matches, and they could not. And even Dominic Team struggled to do that. If you have the chance to step on their neck, you have to. And he didn't do it then. There's a, a game at 3-4 in the fourth set. Wins the first point, has a volley to make it 30-love. Boggles that match, basically. Since that point forward, I did not have the belief that Dominic Team could pull this off. But I, Wolf, I'll pivot back to Dominic Team here. You said after the match that you think it is coming soon. And if it's not him, it's one of the other guys. But he's turning 27 in in September. That's not old in tennis anymore. It's funny, in the past, that would be considered kind of old. But overall, it feels like he's extremely close. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, you just look at his results on hard courts, right? That's what wasn't really there up until, honestly, up until last year, really. Like, he broke through at Indian Wells, beat Federer in the final, and... um, it never really made sense to me why the results weren't coming on hard courts. I thought his game was pretty well suited to that surface. And for whatever reason, um, he just wasn't having the kind of success that I thought he could. I mean, he moves extremely well. Obviously he has the kind of ground strokes that can accelerate through any surface and maybe they play up on clay just because of the mega top spin and the way the ball bounces. And obviously, you know, just like the the way that he can kind of catch up to balls on that surface. But like it didn't entirely make sense to me that the results weren't coming. And I think you're really starting to see that. Um, I think he's learned how to play opportunistically um, and just be a little bit more selective about when he's pulling the trigger. Uh, I think he's gotten much better as a defender, whereas in the past, I feel like he would maybe get a little bit impatient. And and now he's really able to grind out those long points where... um, he can obviously play offense like as well as just about anybody on tour, but I think we're really seeing how well he can play defense. And, and in 
the the part of this match that he was really dominating, Djokovic couldn't hit around him at all. And I think that was part of what was really frustrating Novak is he just like couldn't find his way um, into any of these points where he was really getting on top of team and like moving him around to the point that he was actually making him uncomfortable. Like he was throwing in a bunch of drop shots the team was catching up to without much issue. And I just think the combination that he has of foot speed, um, power, uh, and, you know, Simon, I think, pointed it out, but just, like, the weight of his ball. Like, it's one thing to hit the ball with pace, right? But uh, guys like Team, Nadal, Vavrinka, like, those guys put so much weight on the ball just in terms of, the like, how much they're loading up, how much spin is on the ball, and and how the, their shots can really accelerate through the court. So I, I think he's going to win one. I mean, maybe it won't happen this year, um, but uh, he's, he's obviously getting a lot closer. You know, he takes the set off Nadal at the French last year. And, um, you know, this was obviously his best slam result, getting to the final and, and taking it to five. So uh, I have a lot of faith that it's going to happen for him soon. Now his his grand slam results are interesting. If you go back and look at his career, obviously we know about the the semifinals and the finals at the French and his record there, which is astonishingly good. Outside of that, this is obviously the deepest he's ever ran in Australia. But last year, lest we forget, he lost in the first round of Wimbledon and in the first round of the US Open as well. So it's it's a Jekyll and Hyde situation for him. I think you actually saw this in this tournament as well in terms of some of the players that he had to play against that you really wouldn't think that the number five in the world should be troubled by or should struggle with. I think about his five sets against Alex Bolt in the second round where he really looked like he was on the verge of losing that match but eventually pulled it together and managed to drag his, his way through. All against Taylor Fritz as well in the third round where he... My boy, Taylor Fritz. <laughs> exactly. Defang's boy. <laughs> he stands for Taylor Fritz more than perhaps anyone should do at this More than point. Taylor Fritz's family, I feel like. I'm Apparently so. Boy. And judging by the amount of people in that arena at that point, <laughs> maybe in the tennis world as well. But it is interesting, isn't it, that we tend to remember TM's big moments in Grand Slams or in or in ATP tournaments, sorry, in Masters tournaments, but there's a lot of really bad losses that he takes as well. A lot of matches where the ball simply does not land in the lines um, at all when he's hitting his big, massive ground strokes. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And I know the word consistency gets thrown around so much in tennis, and it's one of those that you'll hear any pundit say, you know, he's just got to find some consistency or she's just got to find that, you know, a little bit more in her game just to be able to find a level that is uh, consistent throughout the whole year. I'm not sure where we're going to get that with Dominic team. I think we're going to get, we're going to get grand slams where he is bounced in the first round and then we're going to get runs to the final where he looks like he's unstoppable. Do you think that the, the comparison to Vavrinka is apt? I mean, he's a better mover than Vavrinka ever was, but sometimes you, you get that sense, right? hits very heavy on both sides, is going to take out some massive seeds and is going to have patches of matches where he's unplayable. I think he's probably the closest comparison. And if he ends up with a slam total that Vavrinka does, I think he's going to be ecstatic about that. His record in the tie breaks led me to believe that he is on that stand path because he's been fantastic in this tournament. When it matters the most against Nadal, he won three breakers, won two breakers against Zverev as well. Um, just as susceptible to losing to an Alex Wolf, but then he pulls up with that, which is very stand to me. And I I mean, right after the match, I was pretty down, um, mainly because I think for tennis in, in general, a, no, a Dominic team win would be better because for the rest of these people involved and, and Wolf ran them off name-wise, Medvedev, Zverev, et cetera, Medvedev being close as well at the U.S. Open, to see it actually happen, I think, is very important for the rest of this group. And Stan was the last guy to do it in 2016 at the U.S. Open. And that feels like a very long time ago. And it was. It was four years ago. Like, this is ridiculous that these three guys are still doing this. And and you have to consider that they're not really going away. And maybe Fed is close. But I think you can, you can definitely say that Novak has at least three more years under him. And Rafa maybe two. This is going to be what it's like for the foreseeable future. What impressed me the most about Novak, I think, is when it didn't really go right at all and he looked all out of sorts, you you knew that there would be a pushback, but his serve got extremely better. And you were looking at second serves that were just ridiculous, jaw-dropping shots that changed the game. And a team could not get close to him when Novak was serving in the fifth set. That second serve that he pulled out, I think it was 30-all at 4-3 in the fifth set. The second serve that he spotted <laughs> right in the corner was like... um. That was unbelievable. And that's just, 
I, that's what these guys just consistently manage to do, right? In those tough moments when they just absolutely need a big serve or a big shot to bail them out, they somehow manage to just come up with those shots at the exact right moment. And um, I don't know how they continue to just do it time after time after time, but um, that's what has made them so special and so indomitable over these years. It's like they don't crack. And to come up with a shot like that in a moment like that was, I don't know, it encapsulates what Djokovic has been about the last few years, I thought, pretty well. Roger was 30 when he won his 17th Grand Slam. That was at Wimbledon in 2012. Rafa was 32. That was at the French Open in 2018. Novak is 32 as well, and that happens here at the Australian Open. 2019-17, this race, I think, is going to be tied at 2020-20 when we're finished the 2021 Australian Open. That's my bold prediction. Um, that also goes against what I said about Dominic team doing in Paris this year, as I <laughs> angrily retorted to Joe, I'm like that he's not going to win this year, and it's going to be the big three again doing it, and Roger possibly at Wimbledon. But I was reading the post-match uh, press stuff, and Novak again was not the favorite of the crowd, even though it didn't involve another member of the big three. And I was thinking, it is uh, obviously something that bothers him. And it was bothering him during the match. That incident with the umpire, I think, was fueled by the fact that, again, he was second favorite on the court, even though he's Novak Dan Djokovic, even though outside in the crowd, there was a huge serving contingent of fans backing him. And Novak basically said, uh, I can't speak for Roger or Rafa, but I basically came from nothing. I came from a situation where there was food lines during a war when I was growing up, Rafa and Roger kind of grew up in different circumstances, not a silver spoon, but a lot more comfortable. And I look at Novak a bit as like the Robin Hood of tennis where everything about this sport screams bougie or elitist, even though I don't really like the word. And Novak Djokovic is not really like that. And I think the fact that he is not backed by the majority of fans feeds into that. And I wonder why that doesn't play out more in his favor in terms of people supporting him. Bush, do you have an idea? I think you have set us up for a discussion on that for another podcast at another time, (laughs) right? Just, I mean, probably we can dig into this at some point during one of the more dead months of the tennis calendar. Believe me, there will be a few of them coming up in (laughs) the next part of the year. But I think you've hit the nail on the head of trying to figure out what it is. What is the what is the most um, poignant question that comes to Novak Djokovic? And I, I think for all of his brilliance, I think the one thing that people respond to most when you talk about him is the fact that he's just not liked. And it's it's astonishing watching this final and just the, I don't want to say vitriol that was directed at him, but it certainly was a, a partisan crowd against him. And I don't think... I can't think of anyone else who has enjoyed the level of dominance that he has that in other professional sports that gets this monster of a reception where it's it's not even icy. It's not even just that he is not liked by some. It seems to be a universal dis, sort of dislike, which is incredibly difficult for me to understand. He doesn't come across well on court. I mean, another example of that was seen in this final. But for goodness sake, the other big three had their first share of moments in this tournament as well, from Rafael Nadal telling the umpire that he didn't like good tennis, which I thought was very entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and Roger basically confronting a lines person about hearing him swear in Swiss German. I genuinely thought he was about to punch her as well. <laughs> What's <laughs> happening? No, no, Roger. <laughs> Why is this happening? Why is the mild-mannered Swiss man approaching this poor woman? It's uh, very entertaining. Um, I don't know. Djokovic is, a, is such an interesting character when it comes to this. Some of it just has to be that he isn't Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer, which is just a it's bizarre a, position to find yourself in. It's the curse of this era, and he will never be those guys. He will be better, possibly, when it's all said and done, when it comes to the on-court stuff, but he will never I mean, be like them. And I think Devang, that is, yeah. I mean, just a just a point on this. I mean, we one of the things they always teach you when you first go to coaching is, uh, depending on where you are in the world, and this is one another thing we can get into a podcast at some point, but different parts of the world and different coaching philosophies will teach different shots first. They'll teach different parts of the game first because there's a belief in tennis and there's perhaps a belief in all the sports that when things get difficult, when pressure gets on you, you go back to the thing that you know best. You know, this is you go back to the, the thing that's worked for you that you know you're going to win points at. And I think that's evolved, honestly, for Djokovic over the years. I think he's taken so much from his two biggest rivals that he's basically become a fusion of his 
his two biggest enemies, he's taken the best parts of both of their games and molded it into this all-around player who is just machine-like at this point. And as much credit as we give to the other players, it's almost impossible to not think that the best parts of them are now part of Djokovic. And it's just astonishing to believe that. I've long felt also, I think just what he ultimately needs in order for fans to start really getting behind him is just for Roger and Rafa to retire. And I think if and when that happens, I do think he'll outlast them on the tour. And and I think once he's there, just kind of in the twilight of his career and sort of hanging on the way that Roger's hanging on right now and trying to add to his Grand Slam count as he rages against the dying of the light, I think that is really what it's going to take. Like that will humanize him in a way that nothing he's done to this point seems to have done for him. And I think um, just having those guys out of the way uh, where he can maybe become a bit of a sentimental favorite and the guy who's been a stalwart for so long that people can actually attach a feeling of nostalgia to at the end of his career. That's when I think that adulation might finally come for him. And I'm in the same boat where I just don't entirely understand where all the vitriol has come from. I know, yeah, he, he doesn't always comport himself in uh, the most dignified of fashion on court, but I don't think it's like completely beyond the pale in terms of what we tend to see on the tour. And, you know, I think ultimately it's just a question of, like you said, Devang, it's a product of his era and who he has been unfortunate enough, I guess, to have had to not just like go up against, but to beat. Like, like that's the sin I think that he has been most guilty of is just being better than those guys exactly. really over the past half decade. Exactly. And that is, I think, the central point to this entire argument. I mean, people were mad at him for celebrating winning a set against Roger because like, Roger's dying on the court. It's like, it's a Grand Slam semifinal. The man has a reason to celebrate. Do I personally like it? No, I don't. But I totally understand why he's doing it. Um, that's a, I think, Joe, that's a great point. When those guys are done and he's the last one and he's the last memory of that era of this incredible era that we will never see again and fans are watching him as that that person that's still carrying that torch that's when i think the the love will happen and he man this is the goat conversation which we can get to at the end of this episode it's um we're getting close to making some final conclusions even as a slam count is not the same yet but uh, the writing is on the wall okay that is the men's final after the break Sophia Kennan arrives in Melbourne. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Open Air Podcast with Simon Bushel and Joe Wolfon. My name is Devang Desai. The men's side went pretty standard. I mean, we knew Novak was probably going to be their Dominic team making his way to the final. Maybe a pleasant surprise. The women's side, if you called this final beforehand, A, I hope you put money on it because you're probably in some sort of gold-plated car in a mansion of a similar sort because nobody could have seen this coming. Sophia Kennan defeated Gabrielle Mugathura in three sets to capture her first slam for the American Mugathura, a multiple slam champion who has been off and, and not the person that we saw a few years ago, but linked back up with Conchita Martinez and found her game in Melbourne and absolutely dominated some very good players. But the story coming out of Australia is an American who does not get any press compared to the usual suspects, whether it be Serena Williams, 
Coco Goff or even Madison Keys. I think you can argue that Sophia Kennan gets less press than Madison Keys, but no longer. Kennan, in three sets after the dropping the first 4 6 or 6 4, sorry, comes back 6 2 6 2. Joe, I'll start with you. Just overall, Sophia Kennan, what impresses you the most about her? Um, I, I'm glad you asked this because I, I'm not really sure. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, yes, I think, yes. I think her game is like so unbelievably subtle that, and you know, not even just for casual tennis fans. Like, I've watched a ton of tennis in my life, and I still can't really figure out what makes her good. Um, and like, yeah, she's got a, like a very solid backhand. She moves well. She's consistent, but it just like nothing about her game really pops off the screen where it's like, you know, you can watch Naomi Osaka play and recognize pretty much right away what makes her special. And with Kennan, it's just I aside from just like being super solid on like break points in that match, you know, both against Barty and Muguruza, um, it's it's really hard to figure out like how she's doing what she's doing. And like, I, I do think she has an excellent backhand. Um, you know, she's a good mover, but, like, her serve is mostly fine. Like, her forehand is fine. Um, I, I just think, you know, there's maybe, like, an element of, of mental toughness there. Like, there's something uh, kind of ineffable about it. And I always wonder with that stuff whether it's, like, transferable, right? Like, is that something that's like, going to carry her throughout her career? I... Like, I do think that mental toughness is a thing, and some players have more of it than others, but I don't know that we should necessarily look at this as, like, a precedent and say that that's just something that she's always going to do well, and that's going to buoy her to, like, multiple Grand Slams in the future. So, um, I, as of now, I guess, I'm just, um, like, I'm impressed with the run that she went on and how well she played under pressure how she handled herself in big moments against some top players in the world. But I, I really have a hard time parsing what it is about her game that has brought her this much success this early. You're, you're so correct. It's just so weird. I can't think of a Grand Slam champion of recent memory who I've just been completely and utterly blah about <laughs> the entire the entire game, which is wow. bizarre. Like, massive respect. I mean, incredible respect for winning your first Grand Slam and the way that she did it and everything that went and the story that's behind this because she deserves all the credit in the world for it but for me personally i just i have no idea how she wins points like you she doesn't have a massive weapon none of her ground strokes are going to terrify you her backhand's very very solid it's easily her best shot by a, a considerable margin she moves pretty well but yeah it's it's a it's a bizarre one she only beat one seed in this tournament but by all it's it's one of those like the for everything that i could say that would be a negative against her. The counterpoint is, well, she won and she won the tournament, so shut up, which I think is completely, <laughs> completely valid thing to yell at someone because the counterpoint to me saying that she didn't beat a seed is the only beat seed that she did beat was the world number one. So, you know, go figure, right? Who There's, also melted down extraordinarily in that match. had a complete well. meltdown. Yeah, but like you can you can point at one side of this, right, that Buddy completely lost that match, which she did. That's one avenue of looking at it. But Kennan just stuck around, did the right things, won points that were necessary, and, you know, got over the finish line. I think that's the one thing above everything else that does impress me about her. She just wins finds ways to win points from point to point no matter what happens in the rally she somehow manages to dog it out and and win the points that are necessary which is a skill in itself there's many players in the world who are unable to convert chances or just do the things that are necessary to win points when they're really on the line i mean one of the greatest players of all time and roger federer has a habit of not converting break points and sophia kennan did the complete opposite when things were really 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 on the line and she had to do it she did it which is a perfect indication of how she won this tournament i don't necessarily disagree with you guys but i will highlight one thing i think she does really well and that's redirect the ball in rallies and change change the angle and points that maybe it's a little subtle thing but definitely makes things uncomfortable for even the most seasoned players like Mugathura, who the first set like Kennan served awfully like it was a terrible set and it was funny they basically switched places after that where Mugathura could not serve at all after the first set Kennan is one of those few players though who when she gets mad at herself plays better and it's like you know you watch Dan Evans who yells at himself and loses his mind and usually his game goes to to crap after that uh 
Cannon was mad at herself, but channeled it in a positive way. I saw at Tennis.com, Steve Tignor say, furious zen to describe her. And it's a bit corny, but it actually makes sense to me. I mean, she kept spiking the ball after points. She was throwing the ball after points, garnering her, her fair share of enemies online, on Twitter, where only the sane discourse prevails. But I think <laughs> that's what I like about Cannon. And I said this last year as well when I was hyping her up. I mean, that French Open against Serena, no one is cheering for her. No one is, no one is wanting to see her win in Paris. No one's cheering for her when she played Coco Goff this year in, in Melbourne in this tournament at all. Like they, she she was just supposed to be there and be someone else that Coco Goff went through on her way to a miraculous run. But I don't think that matters to Kennan. And it's the, you look at the women's side and like it's funny. There's there's a crop of players that have won Grand Slams who have been around for a while. There's a crop of players who are extremely young and have got massive results. And there's a crop of players who could possibly win the tournament but are not household names. Um, I, I looked at Kennan and I had memories of Ostapenko a couple of years ago when she beat Halep. And Ostapenko is 22 now. You could have told me she was 30 and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess the question is like, is Kennan Andrescu? And is Andrescu Andrescu? Like, what are these What are these people? Like, are they going to be there all the time? Or like, what are we looking at? Um, Ostapenko's a funny comparison because their games couldn't be more different. Right, right. Um, but... I, I, this is what I was sort of getting at when I was wondering, like, okay, is this this ineffable, you know, moxie, say, where somebody just happens to be, like, really courageous and be able to, like, dig down and win big points? Like, does that carry forward? And with Ostapenko, like, I just remember when she won the French Open, a couple of days after she turned 20, beating Halep from, you know, a set and three love down. Yeah. And, you know, it was like on every break point, just she was swinging from the heels, like hitting these massive winners. And it's like, oh, my God, she plays with no fear. And you could always tell, like, her game was going to be really boom or bust and that she was going to have some spotty results because of the way that she played. But it seemed like she was going to have a lot more of those booming moments where she did just, you know, basically go to a different level for two weeks and nobody could touch her. And, like, that obviously just hasn't happened at all since then. And Kennan goes about it much differently. Like, I think she'll always be a lot more consistent than Ostapenko is or will be. But um, it's the same sort of thing that I wonder about where I don't know that she'll necessarily have a fortnight like this anytime again soon where she just happens to be playing unbelievable tennis when she needs it most. And against, you know, opponents who aren't quite matching her level on break points, uh, she happens to get through that way. Um, and it's not necessarily an indication of her skill level. Not to take anything away from her. She's obviously a very skilled player, but um, I just don't know if this is the kind of thing that has staying power uh, when you talk about um, you know, the kind of points that she was winning and the way that she was winning them. I did find it very funny to hear some of the commentators and the analysts talking about Sophia Cannon during this two weeks on ESPN. It was very entertaining. I thought there was a certain level of, um, what's the right phrasing of this? A lack of awareness of who they were, considering that most of them went out of their way to say that Sophia Kennan didn't get any praise and they didn't, they it's, it's uh, were job. overlooked. It you, is are literally- the people. you are the people that are supposed to be doing this. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. This, it's so, it no, is it very ESPN, very, very the- ESPN. The golf match was extremely bad for that. I felt bad for her. I'm like, this is weird. And like, she's American as well. And I understand going all in on the storyline, but they consistently undersold her, even though she had some very strong results in 2019. Um, Kennan's story is an interesting one. Uh, born in Moscow, came over with her family. Her dad drove a, ca- drove a cab in New York. She was extremely good, really young. There was a video making the rounds of, of her at the Miami Open, make, uh, touring the grounds with Kim Kleister's. She was five years old at that time. She might play Kim Kleisters this year on the tour, which is extremely jarring. But I uh, I don't have a firm answer. I don't think any of us do in terms of what this means going forward. I think what I wanted to look at, though, before we move on to our closing thoughts on this tournament is the women's top 10 now, and just in general, you can go into any tournament basically now and not have a really good idea of who's going to be there at the end which can go one of two ways. I mean, for me, the men's side is not, it's not stale, but it is a bit interesting that we are, we constantly run into the same matchups at the end of tournaments and that does make for a great narrative. But I think overall, I would like to see some, some change there. On the flip side, 
basically throw some names into a hat on the women's side and see who comes up at the end. And that's basically, you're better off doing that than making any sort of logical prognostication. Is this good, Wolf? Like, do you, do you think the idea that if you go into a tournament and 20 to 25 people can win it, legitimately win it, is that good for the game? Or is it weird that if that person cro- like walked across the street from you, you wouldn't know who that is? Like, is that mm-hmm. a problem? I think for like hardcore tennis fans, it's good. And maybe for casual fans, it's not. I feel like casual fans are naturally just going to gravitate more toward recognizable faces and, and dominant runs. Uh, that's the kind of thing that can sort of galvanize people and be like, oh my God, like you're tuning in to watch Serena try and go for like the calendar slam or, um, you know, Federer try to win his 21st. Uh, and, and I think as people who consume tennis a lot, it's nice to have that bit of variety. It's nice to see different players win and like see all the different sort of game styles and how people can win in different ways. Uh, I really enjoy that. Um, there's always a sort of push and pull there where you don't really know exactly what you want to see. You want to see fresh faces and you want to see something new, but at the same time, you want to see something that is uh, comfortable uh, to you in a way, like familiar in that, um, you know, it's Novak and Roger. Again, you know, you know what it looks like. You've seen it 50 times before, and yet there's something about it that still uh, just makes you want to tune in because these are two absolute titans of the game who are just going at it one more time um so for me yeah i would say i'm, I'm always excited by uh, the idea of parody and the fact that i don't know who's gonna win i find the women's game really really exciting right now for that reason but i think you know a casual fan might have a different take on that i think they probably do i think i think you you are really accurate in that statement i think as a tennis fans and as someone who enjoys the sport immensely and follows it from week to week this is really really fascinating just to be able to go into a grand slam and we think we know what the storylines are going to be and we think we know who are going to be the runners and riders and who are going to be at the latter stage of it and we were so desperately wrong i mean look at the predictions go back to our predictions episode <laughs> I, I, first actually great point i want to shout out chris who did not place in our competition but is the only person that picked cannon so shout out to you sir but yes all of these predictions were terrible <laughs> Keep going, i think if you look at where the seeds got knocked out it, it gives a pretty good indication of where the game's at on both the men's and the women's side. Look at the top 10 seeds of where they fell during this tournament. Karolina Pliskova, who most of us thought we had a really good chance, she had a good chance of going deep in this tournament. I mean, she has a very spotty record at Grand Slam level, but she got bounced in the third round. Osaka, third round. Svitolina, third round. Bencic, third round. Serena Williams, third round. Like Some of these the, in catastrophic fashion as well. Like that Bencic yeah, third like, round match was <laughs> god awful. I'm still mad about that. And I Bencic, by the be- way, who Devang picked to win this tournament. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, bring that up for the rest of the year. Uh, I'm And I'm close to calling Pliskova a jobber who's not ever going to do it on a grand wow. slam stage. <laughs> Honestly, wow. what is this? Like, I, Pavlyuchenkova, like, decent player, very good player, solid player. Um, you should not be losing to her if there are grand designs on winning these things. Yeah, I feel like I pick Alina Svitolina to win like every single Grand Slam <laughs> she enters. On. I'm like, why? She dominates at the tour level, and for whatever reason, it doesn't translate, and I, I don't entirely get it. Well, you couldn't be more accurate in that statement about Alina Svitolina. And but what this- a what a what a just bizarre situation in the women's game that we've managed to get to this point. Maybe maybe it is just the fact that if you neutralize a serve that much, or the courts are playing slightly slower. The the parity on ground strokes or the things that that separate these players are not very wide. It's really quite close at that point. But you know what though? Like you look at you just ran through the seeds on the women's side. Sissy Pass lost in the third round. Berrettini no, lost is, in the second fair. round. Yep. Batista Agu lost in the third round. David Guffin lost in the third round. Chapo lost in the first round. FAA lost in the first round. Like. I think these three guys have completely like altered normal expectations of what we expect top seeds to do at tournaments because mm-hmm. I don't think it, it was definitely not like this in the past either before this era came about and those early Fed days when he had this cast and ca- cast of characters that I mean Marcos Bagdadis made a final in a Grand Slam right like it's halcyon days but like what <laughs> like what so Thomas Johansson won the Australian <laughs> Open so let's let's not forget oh, those man. days as well. Yeah, as well as those three guys on the men's side and Serena on the women's side, exactly. right? That has maybe spoiled us into thinking that there should be a measure of consistency at the top of the game when in reality, if you take those four out of it, that it is kind of a hodgepodge where the results are up and down every week. And maybe that's just how it 
how it ought to be, you know, in normal circumstances. But, um, and, I, and I'm always conflicted about, you know, like, is this about the inconsistency in the women's game or is that about the depth and right. quality of, right. of competition? Um, because they, I think there are a lot of good players. Like, you know, you go pretty much like one through 50, I feel like there are, um, Anybody can beat anybody on any given day, and it's not really some great surprise. So, um, I think, I think you might say that there's more depth in the women's game than there is in the men's game right now. And I, I think obviously, like the, um, the top level competition uh, makes a difference there, and maybe it it seems like there isn't as much depth in the men's game because of how dominant the guys at the top of the game have been. But my feeling about it is that uh, there's a little bit more balance on the women's side. Do you think, by just to, to wrap up on this, do you think that perhaps Ashley Barty is the embodiment of this whole thing? Is that none of us really picked her? This is the world number one who is a Grand Slam champion playing at a home tournament. And I want to say we were disrespectful towards her, given that she made the semifinals and none of us really talked about her in our predictions episode. But she kind of is that embodiment of it, that we kind of just think that she's just, you know, good player, pretty solid, has lots of good ground strokes, you know, um, is the quintessential really solid top 10 player. And we don't consider her to be a dominant world number one. And I don't think we consider anyone on the tour at the moment to be a dominant number one. No, and I, this this also goes back to the argument of limiting the men's side to three sets of majors as well. Like, I think it's a lot harder to to really stun someone over five sets. Like you have to be consistently good for far longer um, to really get that result. Whereas you go to Indian Wells and on the men's side, you you have events like um, Koganaka's beating Fed and, and like you have crazy things happen because it's just three sets. And on the women's side, it's always three sets. So it lends itself to more parity. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's a question for another day because the depth wise, like I think the men's game is, is more talent than ever, but... I, I, there's a lot of a lack of self belief, possibly, and I don't know how it how it is ingrained in like the logistics of the tour and like the culture of the tour, and possibly that people are deifying living beings who are still on the court to this day. But it feels like a a bit like that sometimes. But I, I for me, I, I I prefer the idea that you can go into a tournament and re- legitimately have a final in in Canada and Muguruza and have no idea that that would be that there at the end. I think that's kind of interesting and. For us, people who watch the sport a lot, it is nice to see something different. But I understand why ESPN or TSN or the broadcasters are like, what the hell? Like, it's already at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> Who's going to watch this? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Muguruza was like a superstar two right. years ago no, exactly. also. Exactly. And exactly. it's just like she just fell off the face of the earth and, and suddenly she, she comes back and you realize that the game is still there. You know how many people are going to be climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to find themselves now? Because <laughs> Gavrin, she did it, and now she's back on top. Like, literally, climb a mountain, you'll get there. Um, okay, <laughs> before we wrap up, the contest winners that I alluded to before, we went with the top three. There was a shirt coming your way. We will try and advertise the shirt online to show you what you're getting. Also, shipping times may vary. In fact, I might have to personally deliver this to you, so we will work that out. It's good. I think I know some of these people, so that works. First place, Vivek Jacob. He was on the show last week. 96 points. The runaway winner. He Djokovic'd it on the strength of having Djokovic and team in his picks. And he had Stan, who made a big run, and Barty as well. Second place, Stephen Gray, 67 points. And third place, Noah Love, 64 points. Uh, we weren't counting ourselves, but I had 77 points. So I we just uh, just move on quickly from this. We don't, we don't need Bush. to talk about this. <laughs> Simon Bushel, 55 points, respectable showing. But um, the pundits are asking, is this the end for him? Can he I'm removing my credentials as we speak. <laughs> okay. That was the Australian Open. We'll be back with our closing thoughts on the opening of the 2020 season and where we go from here. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the final segment of our Australian Open wrap-up show on Open Era. I asked my fellow podcasters today to give one final parting shot regarding this tournament and not something that happened in either final. Mr. Simon Bushell, please go ahead. Oh, no. You, damn it. You threw another caveat in there. You said one that not in the final. Uh, it, sorry, it can be in the final, but it's not like it's not like you're referencing a specific shot that happened in the final, right? You're not going to do that? I'm not going to do that, no. Okay, I am going to say that I... I mean, it's it's going to be uh, very funny off the back of me just making an outrageously bad set of predictions um, for the previous section in uh, contest winners. But I'm going to say I think Dominic Tim would have won this tournament if the scheduling was better. I really do. I think the fact that the male semi-finalists get an extra day's rest is ridiculous, especially when it doesn't. Especially when just the level of heat and the level of how challenging it is to play in this tournament, just the physicality required to be successful at the Australian Open is ridiculous. And I think it's one of those things that we look at and we just take for granted that the, both players are going to be fine. They're going to have the same number of rest. It's all going to be fair and everything. But it isn't. This is not fair in in any capacity. And it's, it's something that needs to be addressed at some point. The fact that Neither the women's quarterfinals or semifinals were played in prime time at all. At this yeah, I'm, I mean, How that's that the other thing. It's crazy, isn't it? It's it's astonishing that... Also, at some point, can one of these Grand Slams make a decision to just flip the Grand Slam finals? Like, to put the women's on Sunday and put the men on Saturday. Right. Just do something different at some point, right? Like, I know you, you just tradition, but... Several, several executives' <laughs> head exploded with this whole idea, Bush. You reinvented the game. Doing something different in tennis? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm surprised they haven't... Is there authorities at your house right now knocking on the door? Because this is... No, the, uh, the thought police have got me. The, <laughs> no, this the is ATP thought police. Scheduling atrociously bad. And they are the only slam that does this where the semifinals are on different days. It's ridiculous. And it doesn't always mean that the, uh, the person with less rest loses. I mean, Rafa had that match against Verdasco that went 40 hours and he came back and beat Fed. Um, so it's not always like... Uh, and Novak today was dying and he had the extra rest, right? So it's just... And it, I, I, I asked this on Twitter and like it was like a money thing and... It's a, a TV thing as well, um, but I don't understand why those women's matches, it's in the daytime in Australia. Like, who can watch them anyways? Like, who is watching them on TV? Um, it's better for us over here in, this, in North America. Like, I I don't know. It's it's ridiculous, but it's a fair shout. Joe? I, I'm fully on team switch the men's Grand Slams to best of three. Like, what? I, <laughs> this I just, is, guys, you can't say this stuff out loud, man. It's, it's just too much. Like, I, and I... I, I really think it hit me when I was seeing people on Twitter just kind of describing that Team Djokovic final as like an epic, and I didn't think it was no, an epic at all. Like, no. I thought it was a pretty choppy match that I didn't particularly enjoy for most of the time that I was watching it. And uh, Loki, bad final. Yeah, like, <laughs> bad, bad final. Bad quality think, final. Yeah. So, and this idea that like length somehow equals quality, I just think has got to go. Like, I, I, had so much more fun watching that Muguruza Halep semifinal that I think was, you know, maybe the match of the tournament. It was two sets, but it was it was unbelievable quality. And like I think if you compress it down to the best of three, it just makes every point, every game, every set that much more important. And dragging it out over four plus hours, I just don't know who's really benefiting from that. The players certainly aren't. Like I think they're quality of play is obviously going to be higher and you're, you know you're talking about the scheduling but that goes into it as well right how much time they're spending on court and how much energy they're going to have left to play their next match I think everybody would would benefit from scaling it down and I know that's probably never going to happen because the sort of powers that be <laughs> just won't allow it and it's just so ingrained in in men's tennis this idea of like gladiatorial competition and these Two players warriors coming into the battle yeah and that's I, I can enjoy that in tennis. Like, I did really enjoy that six-hour Nadal-Djokovic Australian <laughs> Open final. Stand, yeah. But 
it's not really why I tune into tennis. And I think it just, uh, I've been leaning in this direction for a while, but after, after this tournament in particular, I think, uh, I'm, I'm just ready to fully stand for best of three. Guys, wow. it's, it's a good um, thing that there is, I brought a fainting couch into the studio because the last my monocle. two, the last two, my, my, I've brought in five monocles as well. All of them <laughs> shattered by the last two takes I've just heard. It's bold thinking like this though, that might bring tennis out of the stone age that we currently find ourselves in and switching the women and men's final around is one thing. And the three sets idea is another. And it is the idea that, oh my God, it went so long. What an app, the Wimbledon final last year. Two, there was some terrible tennis mixed in there. Like Novak, I, Novak did what he did today. Like he completely went away for two sets in that <laughs> yeah. match. Like it, was, it was wild. And but it went five sets, and we had that that epic tiebreak, and it was described at this match of the year candidate, but it wasn't. And we then we completely write off a match like Muguruza or Halep, which had two players literally at the top of their game playing sensational tennis. Good shouts, guys. Um, I'm going to go to something I alluded to a bit earlier. I, I'm on the record. I'm not the biggest Novak Djokovic fan. Um, and I, it is clouded a bit by the fact that I would consider Roger, favor, Roger Federer my favorite. Um, I'm, looking, I'm looking at Novak a bit differently, I think, in recent days. And I mentioned this to our friend Nemanja, who is of Serbian descent and listens to the show about... I I look at Novak now and through a different lens and when he talks about where he came from and what he went through and Sophia Kennan's dad used to stand in the tunnel at tournaments and basically try to coach her from there and was, would get yelled at by tournament officials and you remember Novak's parents used to get in, in trouble for yelling during matches and they had a bit of a, a kerfuffle with Fed back in the day because they weren't doing things the proper way when it came to tennis ed- etiquette and I used to consider that as like a bad thing against Novak but the more I look into it and the more I, the more I realize that a lot of all of this stuff is about where you came from and, and your experiences in that. And the fact that Novak Djokovic has reached the point now where he is very close to becoming the greatest player of all time. He's close to equaling Fed's record for weeks at number one as well. Um, I have, I have a, just the utmost amount of respect for that. And he literally did it his own way. And he's a guy that I don't agree with everything he does. And he's got some eccentric views off the court in terms of yogis and and believing in certain diets, and that's his thing. But I, I've come around on Novak far more than I ever thought I would. And this conversation about the GOAT and who's going to end up where they are, it doesn't really matter that much to me anymore. And it used to a lot. It used to, it used to become to the point where I was looking at finals, what Fed wasn't involved in, and thinking about what the best course of action would be of who winning this and, and what would it mean going forward in the count. But I think at this point, I'm past it. You're looking at probably the greatest of all time in Novak Djokovic, and that's not to say anything less of the doll or Federer. It's just nuts that we are where we are. It's going to end soon. And as Joe alluded to earlier, when Novak's the last one standing and he's playing against guys that are 15 years younger than himself, he will get that love. And I think it's long overdue because it's just ridiculous. And think, uh, we're lucky. Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier that this, it's really difficult to find a comparison in professional sports. I think we all want to try and find things that we can latch on to, but... I, I started trying to bounce it around in my head, like just from the fan reaction and just sort of not being recognized. And I think LeBron James is a little bit of a comparison to it. But then I think mm. he he is beloved, like by yeah. a good proportion of the fans of the NBA. And I thought maybe I think Tom, Kevin, Tom Kevin Brady. Durant is probably a lot closer to that. Like Durant, mm. um, I feel like is pretty, <laughs> I don't know about universally, but like I'd say the majority of NBA fans are either ambivalent towards him or like actively dislike him. <laughs> it's true, right? And, he can, and he's in an era as well where there's a lot of great players around him, but pound for pound, you'd probably be like, Kevin Garnett is the guy. Durant. Dude, I said Garnett. <laughs> you said Garnett, yeah. Wow, I watched that get jokes recently. Hey, maybe Kevin, Kevin Garnett, Garnett is the guy. <laughs> Guys, I haven't slept in hours, man. <laughs> okay. No, that's a great comparison. Um, Honestly, though, I'm going to pat myself on the back because I come a long way. I used to be a, a crazy anti-Novak stan. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, if there the message board days when you could or um, Reddit, I guess, which I do not really go on, but I think the fan wars though in tennis are the most wild thing to me. And I have like I, it's like I don't hate the team, I hate the fans, and I get a, I get I feel that way a lot about tennis now. Um, you don't see that in golf at all because I guess you're not competing directly against them, but no individual sport de- de- develops like this fanatical team aspect where 
you cannot praise someone else and you always have to look at something that's negative and tennis is easily the worst for that. Yeah. And this triumvirate that is so good for the game and so epic has created such a toxic wasteland of fandom that I, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Um, to weigh in just on the GOAT conversation though, I I think like it's never going to be an objective thing, right? Yeah. And that and that's something I feel like we lose sight of all the time is like we're trying to make it a quantitative objective measure of like when it's all said and done, who are we going to talk about as the greatest of all time? And all of them, like we're going to talk about all of them as the greatest of all time and everybody is going to have their own perspective on it. And it's not just going to be about who ends up with the most grand slams. Like maybe that is the closest we can come to one single mm-hmm. all encompassing objective measure, but like it's going to be different for everybody. And I don't think it's going to be a quantitative thing. I think it's going to be more anecdotal and it's going to be about people's personal feelings. And like some people will say that like Federer's peak was the highest. Some will say that, you know, Djokovic had maybe like the longest peak and like Rafa was the greatest competitor. Like you can bring any sort of uh, set of criteria to the table that you want, I think. But it's subjective. And at the end of the day, I think it's just important that we appreciate all of these guys and what they have done for the game and for themselves rather than sort of always trying to make it about this this competition. And I think that speaks to like the tribalism that you're talking about within the fan bases where it always has to be your guy against yeah. the other guy as opposed to just appreciating the sport and and those three guys together and what, the, like the, the heights that they've pushed each other to. I think that's what's been really special. And, uh, and I do wish that there was a more communal aspect to it as opposed to all this infighting. Won't hear any uh, disagreement uh, with me. Yeah, <laughs> bang on. Um, Bang on. Dude, how dare you bring this nuance and this, this correct take to this podcast, Joe? It's um, unacceptable. Ridiculous. Um, yeah, and like it, it it feels a bit like getting to old age where you're accepting things a lot more easily. And I wonder what I was like 10 years ago about this. 10 years ago, because we can say that when they were still all around and playing. But it is, uh, it's not something that you have to measure either. Like who cares? Who cares who is, who is considered what? You like your favorite. I like my favorite. Fed will be my favorite because of the way he plays. Like that's just what it is. Like I, I, it's not going to matter about the amount of titles, but. That's the key, and maybe one Just day enjoy the ride, right? Exactly. Enjoy, enjoy exactly. these guys while they're ha- while they're still there. All right, that's the Australian Open. But one other thing that we didn't mention, yeah, yeah, one very very quick thing, um, fierce fierce commitment from Dominic Tim to the frosted tips. Jesus Christ! And uh, you know, <laughs> we talk about trailblazers and and people pushing the envelope and trying to take a step forward for mankind and humanity. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> He this made it a, okay to be okay and rock out with Frosted <laughs> Tip. Not since B44 did someone really commit to the bit. Imagine like what it would have meant for him to have won this the community, The Frosted, Frosted Tips community? You're, te- you're telling me that they weren't on pins and needles watching this? With the, with the product in their hand and ready to go for another reapplication if he came through with this? My God. My Those God. Facebook groups. They're just, <laughs> we had, we had they're it. all watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so close to being accepted again. Fantastic. Uh... Also, Sasha Zverev, shouts to that kid because uh, we, were, I definitely wrote him off after that disaster ATP Cup, and people were making fun of his serves and regarding the charity that he should donate for every double fault. Kid turned it around, and I think the uh, the biggest thing that I can take away from him is he's got a really good head on his shoulders, and he'll be all right. I think uh, if there's one thing that we can conclude here, Sasha Zverev should go frosted tips. <laughs> Listen, I, I mean, th- it's. You know the people, the people at Adidas already have this in the works somewhere, right? This has got to be a thing. <laughs> They're already wearing the same outfit, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, close it up. This so, that's with- another thing I have an issue with. Stop giving these guys the same. Like, between Sissipas' team and Zverev at this tournament, basically the same. Barty and Kennan were wearing the same gear for Fila. How do you not have like a home and away kit? <laughs> What, it's 2020, man. Yeah, that drives me insane. We're as talking well. about the casual fan tuning in. They're like, who the hell is who <laughs> in this game? What is this? What is this? Uh, okay, that's sorry. That should have been mine. My biggest takeaway from this. The fact Let's that be we, honest, we should have opened with this. Insane. <laughs> Do you think that, like, just to take us back to Zverev for a second, and like, not really on the God same topic damn. at all, but like. Uh, is it good for him like to, to play as far back in the court as he does? Like he's a pretty good defensive player, but I just feel like is he ever no. gonna punch through if he's playing that passively? And like when he was aggressive against team, he was far, far more in it in mm-hmm. that match. I think Bushy was saying the same thing, right? Like when he mm-hmm. went defensive, it was basically game over. He looked really good. When he when he was hitting the ball big and 
serving big and going for his shots. He looked like a he looked like the number one in the world. He genuinely looked like the, all the things that we expect out of him. It looked like the the culmination of that. But when he didn't, he just looked pretty average. There's, yeah. There might be a clue in this. I think at some point that maybe he should do more of it. Uh, big time. Uh, another shout out, Dominic team firing Thomas Mooster during the tournament. His legend from his own country is like, nah, man, this is not working. I'll stick with Nicholas Masu. Maybe he should have kept him. He might have won the final. I don't know, man. I <laughs> looked like he was having trouble staying, paying attention to this. But uh, okay, that's it. We are all running on fumes here. The tour keeps going. Listen, it never stops. India is a stop for the ATP in Pune. Uh, going to Argentina, France. Next big real tournament, though, will be in Dubai and Mexico at the end of February. But we'll be back next week. Probably going to do a mailbag episode. If you got a question, hit us up at Open Aeropod on Twitter uh, or at Decide Devang on Twitter as well. And uh, we'll answer your question. Joe, please come back. This was a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Simon, Godspeed with getting back onto a normal sleep schedule. Thank you. I'm off to get my hair done this afternoon. Ross, <laughs> you better do it, man. You better do it. This community didn't die for this, man. Okay. Uh, Please, if you get a chance to rate or review the podcast, that would be wonderful so more people could get exposed to our fantastic tennis takes that you've come to know and love. We will be back next week. And thank you, as always, for listening to the Open Air Podcast. Thank you.